0: The reading is from the book of Philippians, chapter 2, starting at verse 1, and you can find it on page 1179 of the Church Bibles. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love to the glory of God the Father.
1: Thank you very much for reading, Jonathan, and please do keep your Bibles open there. We've, we've prayed already, but let's pray again as we come to God's Word. Heavenly Father, thank you for this series in the latter two, the Philippians, the things that we've been learning and the, the things that we've been having to repent of as well. Pray that you'll help us now as we look at this well-known passage Fill our hearts with awe and wonder, because of Jesus. Amen. Well, it's often said that pride comes before a fall. That the person who thinks too much of themselves will end up making some kind of catastrophic misjudgment, and that will be their undoing. And it's not hard to think of examples. History is littered with examples of people making mistakes like that. So think of Adolf Hitler. He was embroiled in a terrible death match on the Western Front. And then he decided that he would invade Russia. Russia, which is a country which is so big that it's over 11 time zones. And uh, Napoleon, who was one of the the greatest military leaders, wasn't able to invade Russia. But Hitler thought that he could do it. It was a huge mistake, and it was his undoing. Pride comes before a fall. We know that saying. But from time to time, we find ourselves falling into that same mistake as well. We, we overestimate our abilities. We bite off more than we can chew. We fill our diaries with too many things. And then we're, we're not able to deliver. We're not able to keep our promises. Or maybe we are able to just about do everything, but we're utterly exhausted. And that affects our spiritual life and it affects our spiritual disciplines. Pride comes before a fall. Pride is the way down. For us, pride is the way down for individuals, but pride also affects other people. It affects the team. And that, in a sense, is what we've been seeing so far in the letter to the Philippians. And this is our third week. And remember, if you remember back, that they were a really good church, that Paul had lots of positive things to say. He encouraged them because he saw them as gospel partners. They were mature. They were hardworking. They were generous. He had lots of good things to say about the Philippians, but it seems like there was something of a problem with disunity in the church. And last week, if you were here at the end of chapter one, you remember that he encouraged them to stand united together. There was opposition that the church was facing, but there was some disunity as they were facing that opposition. And in today's passage we're beginning to explore some of the reasons behind the disunity. And he's encouraging them to stand united. And some of the reasons that we see have to do with pride and conceitedness. Now, it's not that the Philippian church were incredibly arrogant. We know that's not the case because he looked up to them. He saw them as good gospel partners. But nevertheless, some of this pride and conceitedness had started to creep in. And that was having a really negative effect on the church. That was meaning that they weren't able to stand as united as they should be. They weren't as effective gospel partners as they would be otherwise. Now, the same is true for Christians today. That's not just true for the Philippian church, right? that's true for Christians in general. When pride starts to creep into our lives, well, that's going to affect our relationship with God. And that's going to affect our relationship with other individuals. But that's also going to affect the way that a church performs as a team. If we want to be really effective gospel partners, then we've got to be really humble gospel partners. And in this amazing passage, Paul points us to the supreme example of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who is truly humble. And we're going to divide our passage up into three sections, you guess it. And firstly, we see that humility is essential for Christian unity. Humility is essential for Christian unity. Look with me at verse 1 and 2. And therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of the same mind. He's encouraging them here to be more united. Now, in some senses, they were already perfectly united. That's because they they were already, by way of their status, perfectly united to Jesus. That's because when somebody becomes a Christian and they give their life to Jesus, they receive the Holy Spirit. They're united to Jesus And other Christians, they also have the Holy Spirit. They're united to Jesus. And so Christians are united to other Christians through the Holy Spirit. They're perfectly connected in that way. But here Paul is encouraging them to live out that unity, and he does it in a very winsome way. He appeals to them, and he says, Look, if you feel in any way blessed by Jesus' unity with you and his pouring out his Holy Spirit on you, If you've received God's grace and his love to you, then will you show some of that loving kindness to your brothers and to your sisters? Don't let pride creep in. See how he goes on. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. He's saying here, That we shouldn't allow this pride, this selfish ambition, this vain conceit to begin to creep in 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 any way. As we're serving as gospel partners, we've got to be serving, you might say, with the, the right attitude. Serving with the right attitude is very important. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that we need to wait until we've got the right attitude to serve. You can imagine a family scenario where the children are all asked to clear the table after dinner. And if one of the children piped up and said, oh, I'm not ready to serve because I've got the wrong attitude. I I think it would be better if if I didn't serve. I'd resent it. I'd make it all about me. I'm not going to serve... And then maybe when I've got the right attitude in the the future, then I can say, well, I'm sure that child very quickly would be told to forget about having the right attitude and to just get on with it. And there's a sense of that in the church. You know, none of us are going to have the right attitude all the time, but there's lots of things to do, things to get on with as we serve. And and sometimes it's as we serve that we realize that it's not so bad after all. So we can't wait until we've got the right attitude to serve. We all know that. But at, at the same time having the right attitude as we serve is very important. And Paul is addressing that right throughout the letter. And in particular, later on in chapter 4, he mentions two women by the name of Euodia and Syntyche. And again, he, he speaks of them very warmly. He describes them as loyal partners. But it seems like there was some kind of personality conflict or some kind of competition which was going on. We don't know exactly. But we've all seen that kind of thing, haven't we, in, in church, where perhaps one lady feels that the church should be very committed to prayer and the other lady feels that the church should be very committed to evangelism. And the one lady, when she prepares her Bible studies, well, they were always very cross-referenced with lots of <coughs> uh, diagrams and pictures. And, and another lady, when she prepares her Bible study, well, those Bible studies are always very applied with lots of scenarios. And one lady, when she bakes a cake, it's always very moist and delicious for the church lunch, and everyone says it's lovely. And the other lady, when she, she sort of bakes chocolate brownies, everyone says they're lovely and, and very gooey on the inside. It's almost like a, a competition that takes place. Have you ever seen that kind of thing? I certainly remember seeing that kind of thing at Bible college. Prospective pastors all sort of jockeying to see who's got the best biblical languages, and who writes the best essays, and who's the best preacher, and who's going to be the first one to write a book, and who's the most committed to to mission. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous, and it's ugly, and it's destructive. When those kinds of ways start to creep into our relationships, it's toxic. It damages our relationship with God, damages the way that we relate to individuals. It damages the way that we relate as a church if that happens. When that happens, well, it leads to things like the cold shoulder for the folk that we don't get on with so well, the little put-downs, the passive-aggressive comments, the thinly-veiled gossip. We need to avoid all of those kinds of things. Now, inevitably, there are going to be times when there are genuine differences of opinion. When we've got theological differences, that's normal. I work at the Cornhill training course, which is a kind of a Bible school, and some of the folk who come along are Anglicans, and some of the folk who come along are not Anglicans, and they thought hard about their position. They're not necessarily going to change their mind on these theological things. But as we have the conversation, the way that we have the conversation is very important. And of course, it's the same for Christians in church. Christians in church across the world are united around the gospel. And there will be secondary issues about which we sometimes disagree. We don't need to pretend that those things don't exist. But as we have the conversation, it's very important the way that we have the conversation. Humility is essential for Christian unity. Humility is essential for Christian unity. And secondly, we see humility is marked by sacrificial service. And really it's the the mind or the attitude which is important here. See what he says in verse 9. In your relationships with with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Have the same attitude. And many would say that, here, verse 5 is right at the heart of what the letter to the Philippians is all about, the mind of Christ. That's why we've called this series The Mind of Christ, that Jesus had this mindset of sacrificial service, that he was willing to lay it all aside in order to serve others. See how Paul goes on in verses 6 to 8. Who being in, in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, this might be an old hymn that Paul is quoting. We don't know, or perhaps he penned the words himself, we can't be sure, but it's talking about the incarnation here. That even though Jesus was God, the uncreated creator, that he laid all of that aside in order to take on human frailty, to come to earth and to serve us. It's the, the truth of the incarnation is an amazing thing that I think we'll never be able to completely wrap our minds around. It would be like, slightly like if, if you or I became an ant. If you've seen that film from years ago, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, you remember they had the machine that could shrunk? You could be shrunk down to be a little ant in order to go and serve the ants. It's something a little bit like that, except that it's far, far more. That Jesus, who is God of the universe, the eternal God, the all-powerful God, the all-knowing God, he laid all of that aside in order to come and serve people. This is the (laughs) humility of God He had a right assessment of who he really was, and he came to serve. Now that's radically, radically different to the world around us. It was hugely different to the culture of the time. For Greek culture and for Roman culture, humility was not seen as a virtue. It was seen as a weakness. And even in today's culture today, so often people are focused on on pride. Pride is somehow seen as a good thing, as being authentically who we are, so folk are willing to step into the limelight and self-promote, that's seen as really quite normal. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong in us making a right assessment of our God-given abilities. nothing wrong with that. And, of course, there's some careers where you need to do a little bit of self-formation just to get your name out. Of course, that's understood. But the Christian way, as we follow the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, is one of... Humility, Laying aside our position in order to serve others. Now, over the years, there's been many examples of Christians who've lived in this way. One example that came to my mind was that of Eric Nash. He was a Christian minister, rather an eccentric man. He ran some summer camps, camps which were very instrumental to the Christian scene in this country. He personally was responsible for helping to disciple John Stott over a number of years. So he was running these Christian camps and he always gave himself the job of cleaning the toilets. He could easily have delegated that to somebody else. But he wanted to embody this mindset and he wanted to remind himself that even though he was leading, he had to be willing to do the lowest of the jobs. Same too for us. As we walk in the door, we come from different backgrounds. Some of us will be industry leaders in the things that we do. We lay all of those things aside. We come with a mindset of service. That is a godlike thing to do, sacrificial service. But what we see in these verses is that Jesus' sacrificial service goes even further than that. It's not just becoming a person. There's a double humil- humiliation here. He goes to the cross, verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now there's so much theology in these verses, and I think in verse 8 in particular. We could go on and on and discuss about how Jesus had to be fully man and also fully God. We could talk about how his death on the cross was a substitute. We could talk about penal substitutionary atonement. We could talk about his victory as we look at the verses that go on. But the, the emphasis here is very much on the example of the Lord Jesus Christ that he emptied himself of everything and that he went to the cross to serve and even to suffer for those who were undeserving and it seems to be this point that the philippians th- it seems to be this point that the philippians hadn't fully grasped now if you were with us last week then we will already have been exploring that remember the philippians had sent one of their own members to Paul. Paul was in prison there, he was suffering. They were very, very concerned about him. And Paul had to write back and he said, look, don't be so, so concerned about me. Yes, I'm in prison. Yes, I'm suffering. Yes, I might die, but Jesus is using all of this for good. It doesn't matter that my name might be maligned. It's not about me. And even if I do die, I go to be with Jesus. And if I don't die and I continue to suffer, then God will use that suffering for good. And remember that wonderful phrase in chapter 1, to live as Christ and to die is gain. To live as Christ, to become more like Jesus in his suffering and to die is gain, to go and be with him. It's a win-win scenario. And for Paul, he very much saw becoming like Jesus as becoming like him in every way, including in his suffering. That's why he says in chapter 3, I want to know Christ. Yet to know the power, yes, to know the power of his erection and participation in his suffering. It's becoming like Jesus in every way. Jesus who suffered and died for the undeserving. And as Christians, he calls us to follow in this path, to pick up our cross and to follow him. And serving with this mindset, well, it means stepping out of our comfort zone and being willing to do things that perhaps we wouldn't necessarily choose to do. It means serving in a way that's not just necessarily wholehearted and hardworking, but even serving in a way that pushes us to a point where we might feel overwhelmed or exhausted or or, or suffering. It means serving people who are sinful and who perhaps misunderstand us, and perhaps even malign us at times. Now, as I say all of this, of course we can't do this on our own. This isn't something we can do on our own. It's only through the power of the Holy Spirit in us. And of course, this isn't something that comes naturally to us. And in the future chapters, we're going to be thinking about how we rejoice in Jesus, helps us to embrace this radical mindset, the mindset of Christ. And of course, this this doesn't mean that we should be doormats. Yes, of course, it's right sometimes to serve sinful people. Other times, we need to call out sin. And of course, this doesn't mean that we need to push ourselves to burnout. We want to serve in the long run, and so we need to practice what Christopher Ash calls zeal without burnout. Sometimes we do need to have boundaries there. Well, in a a small church like, like we are, there's always going to be more jobs that need doing. And this isn't about just doing more jobs. This is about having this mindset, a different kind of attitude, the attitude of Jesus, where we come and say, I'm here to serve. Humility is marked by sacrificial service. Humility is marked by sacrificial service and humility is the way to true glory. Look with me at verse 9 to 11. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess, every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, it's talking here, of course, about Jesus' resurrection and his ascension. That although he died, he didn't stay in the tomb, that God raised him up. And that after that he ascended and then God gave him the name that is above every name. That all authority was handed to Jesus. Jesus went down to the grave and then he came up. But sometimes people point out that this is a little bit like the, the Nike tick sign or swoosh time. Do you know that Nike swoosh sign? I think it's the official name for it is the swoosh, which goes down and then up. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ went down, down, and then up. That's the pattern of Jesus. And that's the pattern of everyone who's following the, the Christian life. It's, it's down and then up. And it's as Jesus is living out this pattern that he reveals to us the glory of God. You see, how can we know in any real sense what God's character is like, that, the depth of his love? Well, it's only through the cross that Jesus was willing to go to the cross in order to spill his own blood for the undeserving, that that reveals the goodness, the godness of God. And so for all eternity, Jesus will be worshipped as the lamb who was slain. That is... Something that reveals the glory of God, verse 11. The glory of God is just the revelation of the goodness of God. Now, someone might say, well, isn't this Jesus making it all about himself in the end? I mean, we all know stories of CEOs who who are willing to work for decades and in less good jobs, and the hope that eventually they might be able to scamper to the top of the pile and then lord it over everyone else as they get a fat cat's salary. Is that what's going on here? That Jesus humbled for a moment, but really it's all about him being glorified for, for himself. And the answer is no, of, of course not. Because Jesus takes us with him. And his story is our story. Remember in these earlier verses, it says here that we're united to the Lord Jesus Christ. That if we're a Christian, we've died to our old self. And we're raised up with the Lord Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says, we're seated with him in the heavenly realms. So his story is our story. His glory, well, we share in that glory as well. But it's often said that in the Christian life, the way up is down. If we're looking for glory, the way to, to receive that is by laying down our lives. But that is what Jesus taught, told us to pick up our cross. He says whoever wants to be first is got to be last. That is, the, <clears throat> that is true individually, but it's also true corporately. It's as Jesus lays down his life that he is glorified and it's as he lays down his life that he takes the team with him as well. And that's the kind of thing that Paul wanted the Philippians to see. See, it's as this pride and conceitedness was seeping into the church, that that was affecting them living in a way that was really united. But if they laid down their lives, they'd be united together, and the whole church would rise up together. And this is the, the pattern of the Christian life, and this is the pattern of Christian leadership. It's humble leadership. It's, it's servant leadership. And that's, that's true in the chairs, but it's also true in life more generally. And management consultants have, have started to cotton on to this. I was reading an article in Forbes recently, and this is what it said about... Leadership. It said, researchers at the University of North Texas in an analysis of more than 200 studies found that humble leadership was the strongest predictor of both employee satisfaction and improved performance of both individuals and teams. Improved performance of both individuals and teams. Now, we didn't need Forbes to tell us that because it's in the Bible. It's as we lay down our lives to serve others that together we're united and strengthened. It's as in our marriages we lay down our lives to serve our spouse that the marriage begins to flourish. It's as we lay down our lives in our families that the family dynamic starts to improve. It's as we lay down our lives in a church context that we're united together and we love Jesus better together serving for him. It's not something we can do on our own. It's not something we can do without the power of the Holy Spirit. But it is something we're called to step into here. I I don't know if you've come across the phrase WWJD, what would Jesus do? I think it was a craze about 20 or 30 years ago or something like that. I think the the story started in 1989. There was a youth worker called Jani Tinklenberg, And she was so struck by the example of the Lord Jesus in a book that she read called In His Footsteps. And she wanted the members of her youth group to sort of grasp something of this. And back in those days, friendship bracelets was a, a bit of a craze. And so she decided to have these friendship bracelets made with a WWJD and first off she made 300 and they all went and then it became a worldwide craze. Maybe even some of you once had a WWJD bracelet Now, of course, there's limitations to WWJD. There's all kinds of things that Jesus can do that we just can't do. But in this passage here, we are being asked to have the mindset of the Lord Jesus Christ, to follow him in that. And over this next week, I'd love us to be asking ourselves that question a few times. WWJD, what would Jesus do? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your kindness to us. Thank you so much that even though we were completely undeserving, that you came to earth and you became a person to serve. And thank you that much more than that, that you went to the cross in order to die for sinful people who rejected you, those who wanted you dead. And Lord, we pray that as your followers united to you in faith, that we would start to live out just something of that. You know instinctively that we're weak. You know instinctively that we're sinful and we don't want to do that. But help us, we pray, over this week to have something of your mindset, the mindset of Christ. We ask in your precious name. Amen.